This morning's sermon text comes from 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. I'll begin reading verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Father in heaven, I pray now that we who are assembled here would have hearts to hear and understand and feel the weight of the truth about love and about self-examination, about the Lord's Supper, about the implications for for our lives of the cross that we've been singing about. I pray, O God, that we would experience what John Newton wrote in that amazing song with pleasing grief and mournful joy my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy yet live by him I killed Lord beget in our hearts a pleasing grief and a mournful joy. For we are great sinners and have a great Savior. Make yourself known now in the ministry of the Word, Christ. O risen Christ, come, be known, be loved, be cherished, be trusted by every person. In this room, I pray. Amen. 
Well, Lord willing, what I want to do tonight is finish the uh, three-part series on the Lord's Supper and the meaning of the Lord's Supper that we began, what, four weeks ago now. And if any of you feels like, oh my goodness, the Lord's Supper, this is just kind of religious ritual that doesn't have anything to do with my wider experience, you're wrong about that. And I hope that the Lord will give you grace to keep on listening for another little while so that you will see that it has to do with love. It has to do with eternity. This issue is as wide as love is wide, this meaning of the Lord's Supper, and it's as long as eternity is long. And that will be plain if you would just give me a hearing for the next few minutes. I've said that there are four meanings to the Lord's Supper so far and then two more tonight. Let me review those with you. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a a proclamation of the gospel. That's verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The second meaning of the Lord's Supper is that it is a remembering of Christ. Oh, precious Christ. And you see that in verse 24. Do this in remembrance of me. The third meaning of the Lord's Supper is that it is a spiritual feasting on all that God is for us in Jesus. And you can see that in John 6.35, which you don't have open in your lap, but let me read it to you. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the fourth meaning of the Lord's Supper is a savoring, a delighting in, a being strengthened by... The promises of the new covenant. You remember what those were? Forgiveness of sins, writing the law in our heart, knowing God and having God as our God. Now today I add two more meanings. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a call to love. And secondly, the Lord's Supper is a call to self-examination. And we'll look at those two in just a moment. But first, I want to address a very nitty-gritty practical question that some have raised and all parents should be concerned about. Namely, how old should you be to take communion? And in answering this question, you will learn something about Bethlehem. One of the things I hope you'll learn is this. We believe... That in the Bible, there are more and less vital things. And in the Bible, there are more and less clear things. Some things are more vital, less vital. vital. Some things are more clear and less clear. And when a less clear and a less vital issue come together, we don't speak decisively. We speak decisively around here about a lot of things because we think a lot of things are clear and vital in the Bible. But this isn't one of them. That is, the age at which a child should start to take communion. So, what we do in situations like this is uh, give the minimum expectation, and then share our own sense of wisdom for our own children and let parents decide for 
yourselves when your children take communion. So here's the way I'm going to answer it. I'm going to read several paragraphs for you from David Michael's paper on, I think he called it, Why Can't I Have a Snack? (laughs) Which is what your three-year-old is going to ask, or four, or... And the, the paper is online at desiringgod.org, and you can just go to the front page and click on it and read the whole thing. I recommend that you do that, <clears throat> because I'm just going to give pieces of it, and you're going to be frustrated that you don't have the whole thing unless you read it. So here's David, David's response as the associate pastor here for parenting and children's discipleship. Here's what he says. When people inquire about children taking the Lord's Supper, I have two perspectives to share with them. The first is that our communion services are open to all who are present, including children who are, one, trusting Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for the fulfillment of all of his promises to us, including eternal life, and two, who intend to follow him as Lord and obey his teachings. Therefore... He writes, children are welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper if they can understand its significance, they are able to give a credible profession of their faith in Christ, and when they consciously intend to follow him as Lord in obedience. And I now insert a fourth criterion that I'm sure David would agree with, and it has to do with what I'm going to say in the rest of this message, namely, I think children should be able when they eat the Lord's Supper, to do very serious self-examination. You'll have to assess for yourself what that would involve as I talk about self-examination in a few minutes. Continuing with what David wrote, David Michael, there is no test that the children take or class that they attend to help establish their readiness like we have for baptism. We simply leave it up to parents to decide when their young disciples are ready. And then he says, my other response to this question is to share how Sally and I dealt with the issue for our two daughters. Now, their daughters, in case you don't know, David and Sally, are grown, so they've walked through this uh, for some time and dealt with a lot of other kids. Our way is certainly not the only acceptable way to handle the issue Other spiritually wise parents at Bethlehem, including some of my respected colleagues on the pastoral staff, have handled it differently. Nevertheless, I commend our way to you for your consideration as you lay out a path for your children. When our girls were small, we explained that they would be able to fully participate in the Lord's Supper sometime after they were 13 years old. Admittedly, this response was somewhat arbitrary and sounds a bit legalistic, but it was a simple response that they could grasp, and it was enough to settle the issue for them. There were reasons, important reasons, why we encouraged them to wait. And I'm just going to give you the headings of his next paragraphs instead of reading the whole thing. One, wait for understanding. Two, wait for more independent thinking. Three, Wait for significance. Four, wait for anticipation. Five, wait for memories. Six, wait for maturity. 
Even though we may ask our children to wait for a season before they fully participate in the Lord's Supper, it can still be a significant experience for them in their preteen years. We should not wait to teach them about the meaning of the celebration and how to examine themselves, to confess their sins, to remember the Lord's death until he comes. My aim in writing this article, he says, last paragraph, my aim in writing this article is not to have all of our children going through the proper religious motions at the perfect time, whenever that would be. My aim and earnest prayer is that our children will know the sweet fellowship with the living Christ and experience his life-changing, soul-satisfying work in their hearts. May the Lord use our efforts in preparing our children for his table to nudge them closer to fellowship with him. In other words, the answer is, we put the question back on you, the parents. You must bear the weight of wisdom. You must bear the weight of biblical reflection. And you must bear the very difficult task of knowing and loving your children. And if you decide in different ways, nobody's going to be looking over your shoulder to criticize you in this regard. The rest of this message is an attempt to take these two meanings of Scripture, or two meanings of the Lord's Supper, call to love and a call to self-examination, and open them from chapter 11, and I hope feed into parents' minds and hearts, as well as all the rest of us, facts and insights that will help you make this call. So, point number one, the Lord's Supper is a call to love. Seems really significant to me, I don't know, see if you think this is true. Seems really significant to me that in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writing letters does not bring up his explanation of the institution of the Lord's Supper in a context of systematic teaching on worship like teaching on singing and teaching on praying and teaching on preaching and teaching on the sacraments and teaching on response. You don't find anything quite like that. What he does is bring up the Lord's Supper as an indictment of the moral mess that he was dealing with at Corinth. It's almost like he's writing about this terrible selfishness that he sees in the church, and it occurs to him... The Lord's Supper would have something to say about that. So let's get the moral mess in front of us and then watch how he brings in the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. 17. Basically, that verse says, I don't commend you for what you're doing as you come together. And the reason is because there are these old divisions. Remember from chapter 1 of, of 1 Corinthians, some people say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of... Uh, Cephas, and they were bragging about their teachers, and there was divisions in the church based on pride, and he dealt with that in the first four chapters. Here they are again, verse 18. When you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be, may be recognized. Well, that's amazing to me. He does not like the fact that there are factions, divisions. I'm hearing these stories that there are divisions in the church. And then instead of saying only bad things about that, Paul 
penetrates to the heart of the providence of God over the church. And he says, God has a purpose in that. God has a purpose in this sinful fracturing of the church. And he says, it's got to be that way, I guess, because God wants to make the genuine to stand out among you. I just think that's amazing that Paul would first indict them for the divisions and then say there's a divine purpose in the divisions. There's a difference, however, between the divisions in chapter 11 and the divisions in chapter 1. The divisions in chapter 1 were, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, I've got my favorite teacher, etc. Here... In chapter 11, the divisions are economic and class. Verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What's he saying? He's saying the well-to-do in this church, seem utterly oblivious of the poor. And they go ahead and they eat their own meal, stuff their mouths, and even get drunk, oblivious to these folks over in the corner who don't have anything to eat. They don't bring anything with them when they come to the feast. That just seems almost impossible to me. I mean... How can Christians get together and act that way, right? One is hungry, the poor, who don't have anything over in the corner, and another one is eating and drinking so much he gets drunk. This is church. And when I see that and I say, I just can't be. That can't have happened. It it did happen, and it causes me to step back and say, okay, Bethlehem, anything like that going on here? I mean, it seems absolutely unlikely, right? Just like it did there. Any class distinctions at Bethlehem? Any economic distinctions at Bethlehem? Any leaning towards people who dress a certain way or don't dress a certain way? Any looking for a certain kind of education and we like that kind of people? And Is there any of that here, I wonder? If you're aware of it, if you're participating in it, let this message have an impact on you. Paul is very upset with this situation. Look at verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? In other words... Eat at home. If you can't share your food and and make this church what it really is, then quit having your feasts and just eat at home. Evidently, they came together to eat and then they moved through their feasting into the Lord's Supper. And there were some who had nothing. See that at the end of verse 22? You humiliate those who had nothing. What's going on here? Let's read that middle part of verse 22 again. Do you despise the church of God? 
These are the well-to-do folks who are just eating and drinking and oblivious. Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Let me ask you, do you think that if Paul had been there and had said to the well-to-do folks who were eating and drinking, oblivious to the poor who maybe were sitting off to the side and were feeling very awkward because they didn't have anything, if he said to the wealthy, um, you're despising the church, do you think they would have agreed with him? I think they would have said, we love the church. This is really fun. We like coming to church. If we despise the church, we'd be at home. Thank you. This is, we like being here. We don't despise anything about the church. I think that's what they would have said. And it would have been quite reasonable. They were having a great time at church. Now, the implication of that is really big. You know what the implication of that for us is? Coming to church, enjoying it, is no proof that you're not despising it. That's pretty scary. That you can be so out of touch with what's really happening in God's eyes that you can be there eating a Wednesday night meal, singing songs, hobnobbing in the commons, liking church and despising the people of God. How can that be? And add on top of that, they humiliate those who have nothing. Now, they certainly were not thinking, now how can we humiliate them? Let's, let's, let's really work at humiliating the poor. They weren't thinking that way. It was just happening. The despising was happening. The humiliating was happening. Now, we got to ask, what is this despising of the church that you can be doing and not even know it? How can you despise something and not know that you're despising it? I think despising the church means treating the church as something utterly beneath what it is. Treating the people of Christ as utterly beneath what they are. So who are you? You are the body of Christ. The bodies in this room, the physical bodies in this room are the touchable presence of Jesus Christ, the risen one. And you are the bride of Christ and you are the temple of God. A dwelling place for God. So those are just three of the images that the New Testament uses about the body of Christ, the church. Body of Christ, bride of Christ, temple of God. And you get together with them and are all wrapped up in your meal and your self, your appetite, your thirst. You don't even see the poor. And he says, that's a despising of the church of God. That's a treating of the church lower than it is. 
And the meaning of humiliating the poor, how do you do that? You make him feel and you make him look foolish when he hasn't done anything foolish. And I put it like that carefully because I believe it's right to shame people who do shameful things. I think if you see somebody, a brother or sister, do a shameful thing, you should go to them and make them feel ashamed if you can. But these people hadn't done anything shameful. They just didn't have any food. They're just poor. And being poor is not a shame. Is it? Paul didn't think so. They didn't have anything to eat. So here they were. I mean, I'm trying to picture the setting. Let's all get together and have a big banquet every Wednesday night. And then we'll have the Lord's Supper afterwards. And they were coming and the, and the well-to-do had their baskets full of food. And, and the poor, maybe the slaves, they just came straight from work. And sat in a corner. Awkward. Really awkward. Maybe just trying to talk and look like they didn't really want anything to eat. So this this mess here in Corinth is all about despising the church and being oblivious and uncaring and indeed humiliating and shaming the poor when they haven't done anything to be shamed for. So Paul asks in verse 22... Shall I commend you for this? The answer is, no, I will not. And then comes the Lord's Supper. For, that's the key word that tipped me off of this first point in the sermon. I will not commend you for your loveless, selfish behavior For I received from the Lord Jesus how on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and after he had broken it, gave thanks and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Isn't that amazing? The Lord's Supper in this text is not brought in as part of a teaching on worship. It's brought in as an argument against lovelessness. I will not commend you for the way you're eating and drinking and humiliating the poor and despising the church. And the reason I won't commend you for that is because the Lord's Supper means don't act that way. He, This is my body which was broken for the poor. That's the link. So point number one is, I think, obvious. The Lord's Supper is a call to love because it's given here as an indictment of lovelessness and selfishness and obliviousness to people in need. So, when we eat the Lord's Supper, let's hear a strong call, Bethlehem. Oh, love each other. Love each other. Cherish the body of Christ. It doesn't matter whether you get along with everybody real easily. It doesn't matter if there's different classes and different races and different educational levels. Love the bride. That's what the Lord's Supper means. Love each other. Second and last point. 
The Lord's Supper is a call to self-examination, which is obvious. If it's a call to love and you're not loving, you better examine yourself and figure out why. But let's read it in verses 27 and 28. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There it is. Let a person examine himself lest you eat unworthily. Now what would unworthy eating and drinking be? Here are my four suggestions. It would be failing to appreciate the significance of the bread and the cup which are Christ crucified for the people that you're not loving. That would be one failure, one unworthy way of eating. Secondly, failing to feel any remorse for those bad attitudes and actions. Third, failing to renounce those attitudes and actions and move onto the path of love. And fourth, failing to trust Jesus to forgive you for those attitudes and actions and give you power to walk in love. Now, let me turn that around and do it positively. I just stated four negative things of what it is to eat unworthily. Let me just state them positively of what it is to eat worthily. And parents, just tune in here especially, because I think the readiness of your children is determined in large measure whether these four things can happen, are happening. So, one, do you see and savor what the bread and the cup signify a body broken, blood spilled, so that the, the church, the bride, might be purchased and purified, treasured as the Lord's, the apple of his eye, so that who could possibly shame and humiliate a person in the church when Christ did exactly the opposite, namely died. He became shame. He became humiliated to lift us up to glory. Oh, we've got to know what the bread and the cup signifies. Second, we eat worthily when we feel remorse, when we feel bad that our attitudes and actions haven't been that way. And not just in the service all week long. How are you doing? Now, here is a place where in my child rearing, I brought four boys through this season, and now Talitha's right there, right there, seven years old, wondering, hmm, when do I get this? One of the things I always look for in the boys, and I'm fallible, is genuine spiritual remorse for sin. Not for being caught but for sin as something ugly in itself and something offensive to Jesus in itself. Watch in your children for the coming alive of true brokenheartedness for sin. Not tears at having been caught. Now that is not easy to discern. I admit that. Parenting's is not, not an easy task. But until I see that, I would not push a child to any kind of decision, any kind of, of commitment, 
or any kind of participation in the Lord's Supper. That would be one of the several elements I would look for. Remorse. It is right to feel bad that you're an unloving person sometimes. Really right. It's a sign of a really newborn heart when it feels bad that it humiliated a poor person. I mean, I I hope that these well-to-do folks, when they read this letter, were convicted by the Holy Spirit, were shown to be among the genuine So that they said, oh, how could we have been so blind not to share our food? What's wrong with us? Ever had any eye-opening experiences like that in your life? Wives and husbands are good at pointing out those blind spots. Did you know what you said? No. What? Well, it hurt. Third, to eat worthily, renounce. Don't just feel bad. Don't stop there. Renounce the attitudes and actions like humiliating the poor and despising the church. Renounce them. Turn from them. And walk in love. Say things like, At the Lord's table, I will not treat the church as something cheap. I will love the church and cherish the blood-bought people of Christ. I will not humiliate the poor. I will love the poor and serve the poor. Make resolves like that. And then fourthly, to eat worthily is to trust Jesus to forgive all those lousy behaviors and attitudes and to give you power to make progress in the week to come over them. And then when those four things have happened, you eat. Now, I'm going to make sure that I don't over uh, over demand because The Lord's Supper is about shed blood and about broken body, all to purchase sinners by grace. And so don't get a perfectionistic notion in your head that, well, I couldn't come this morning. The attitude I had yesterday was absolutely awful. Or the the ride to church this morning in the car was just horrible. Or, or, or. Don't, Don't erect... Artificial barriers. Know that if you recognize those things, if you feel bad about those things, if you renounce those things, and if you just sweetly embrace the forgiveness that there is in the table through Christ by faith, then you can eat. It is all grace. The table is all grace, which leads us to one last shocking observation. This grace that the table is always takes some very strange forms that don't feel like grace when they happen. And therefore, we must be taught what God's grace looks like towards his children. So let's read verses 29 to 30. 
Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now that may have a double meaning there, the word body, I'm not sure. Body, that is the piece of bread I'm holding in my hand. Discern what that really signifies. Or the body of Christ, the people. Discern who they are so that you don't despise them. Maybe a double meaning there in the word body. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's mind-boggling. See what he's saying? Eating the Lord's Supper unworthily may, not will, but may bring down a judgment from God expressed in your getting sick and dying. That's strange grace, isn't it? But what makes it crystal clear as grace is verse 32. But when you are judged by the Lord, that is when you get weak or sick or die, when you are judged by the Lord, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined. So that, that's a very crucial connecting phrase there, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Now do you see how it's grace? This is absolutely amazing. Don't eat the bread and the cup unworthily. If you do, judgment, not condemnation. You see the distinction? Judgment, not condemnation, may come upon you. Call it discipline. It's the love of your father. In other words... Put it this way. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This text is built on that rock-solid foundation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But there are lapses for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there are seasons of lovelessness. And God knows where we're going during those seasons. And in order to alert us, he disciplines us during those seasons, sometimes with weakness, sometimes with sickness, and sometimes he takes our life and we die in order that we will not go to hell. Let me read it again, lest you think I'm making that up. Verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, he's referring back to weakness, illness, and death. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined. That is, by a father. So that we will not go to hell. So that we will not be condemned along with the world.
There is saving grace to prevent shipwreck of faith. God knows his own. He knows when he must bring sickness, when he must bring weakness, and when he must bring them home now, lest they perish. Of course, the elect can't perish. And that's why, knowing them, he takes them home if he has to. Eternal security is not like a vaccination that you get on your arm, and after you've got it, you just got it. Eternal security is the ever steady work of God in your life, keeping you for himself. It's a very dynamic thing. There's a lot of process involved. There are a lot of means of grace being used. And one of the means of grace is your death, if he has to. Or your sickness, or your weakness. That's a mind-blowing view of God and the Lord's Supper. So I said at the beginning, if you think this is just a nice little interesting religious ritual that doesn't really have anything to do with your life out there in the real world or your future, I just want to say you're wrong about that. This table, how we get ready for it and whether we eat worthily or not is as wide as love is wide and as long as eternity is long And it is very, very serious. So I sum up now in conclusion. There are six meanings of the Lord's Supper that we've looked at. One, it's a proclamation of the gospel. Two, it's a remembrance of Christ. Three, it's a feasting on all that God is for us in Jesus. Four, it's a savoring of new covenant promises. And tonight, it's a call to love Don't despise the church. Love the church. Don't humiliate the poor. Love the poor. Serve the poor. And it is a call to self-examination. Have you done that? Repent. Renounce. And embrace the forgiveness that there is in Christ. It's all grace. And it's all mercy. But sometimes mercy is tender. And sometimes mercy is tough. And sometimes grace is sweet. And sometimes grace is severe. And I pray that the Lord will make us stable and strong. And I would just say to parents, having heard these things and what self-examination involves, think long, think hard, pray together as a couple or single mom or dad. And decide, and God will bless you. He will guide you, even if your decisions may be different from someone else. But let's examine ourselves, all of us, not just parents. This isn't just about children. This is all of us, and whether we love the poor here and outside, and whether we value the church. So here's the way I want to close. Um, Turn in your worship folder to the middle panel, the song, You Are My Life. And I'd like to just pray this prayer and affirm this affirmation in the middle verse. O holy fire, love's purest light, burn all desires till you are my one delight. That's prayer, right? 
And if you want that to happen, oh God, burn all competing desires out of my life. Make yourself preeminent. And then if you want to affirm my love for you will never die, Jesus, you are my life, then make that affirmation. So stand together with me, would you? And let's sing those last two verses. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all the people said, Amen.